Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. They're, they're a special gang we have here, and uh, they'd be happy to pass the Bible to you. You can turn to the book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament, Judges chapter 6, and then we're also going to look in Romans chapter 8. Judges chapter 6, which is Old Testament, Romans chapter 8. We've been talking for the last, I don't know, six or seven weeks, we've been talking about the names of God in the Old Testament and how he reveals himself. We've we spent several weeks talking about Abraham because God revealed himself to Abraham in different ways at different times. Last week we talked about in chapter 22 of Genesis, we are talking about Abraham and God revealing himself as Jehovah Jireh, his provision. And... This morning, we are, we're jumping way ahead in time. As a matter of fact, this morning, we're going to go about 600 years in the future from where Abraham, uh, is, where we were last week with Abraham. Um, probably a hundred, roughly a hundred years from where we were a few weeks ago when we looked at Moses in Exodus and God revealed himself as Yahweh or Jehovah. And it's probably a hundred years past that even that we get to our story today. A lot has happened in those 500 or 600 years from Abraham. Of course, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac gets married, has Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes Israel. Um, then there toward the end of Jacob's life, um, he takes his family because of famine and all. They end up in Egypt, and then they're going to there's a king is going to rise up, a pharaoh will rise up there in Egypt who doesn't remember Jacob and his family. The, the nation of Israel is going to go into bondage for 400 years. They're going to be there. Then we're going to see this with Moses where at about 500 years passes and we come to Moses and God begins to reveal himself to Moses as, as Yahweh, Jehovah. Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. They go off into the wilderness you know, they spend 40 years there in the wilderness. Joshua is Joseph's assistant, servant, if you will, um, apprentice. He's learning from Moses. He's going to take over at the end of Moses' life, and he's actually going to take the Israel into the promised land as they begin to fight, as they wage war, and claim what God had promised to them way, way, way back. What he promised to Abraham way, way back. So all of this has passed. Joshua has led the people in, but there are still some enemies in the land. The scripture says the Lord left some there to test Israel, and Joshua now has died. And after Joshua dies, you come into a period of time in the nation of Israel called the time of the judges. The time of the judges is a series of events that are recorded for us where the nation of Israel, they're, they're loving God and following God, and then they don't. Then they stop. They, they backslide. They wander off. They begin to mix things up. They turn their back on God. They decide they can make better choices for themselves. And when they do, God allows them to reap the fruit of what they have sown. And when that happens, it gets bad for Israel. And when it gets bad for Israel, they do what we all do. They cry out for help. 
And so they cry out to God. God hears them. He sends them a deliverer, a prophet, a judge, if you will, and brings this person into the life of the nation of Israel and allows there to be usually great victory. God demonstrates his power and his deliverance to them. So this is the whole book of Judges, and, and the book of Judges spans a, you know, a, a quite a long period of time. But in here, we're now roughly 100 years after Moses, we come to this chapter 6, we come to a guy by the name of Gideon. You know the story of Gideon. Most people recognize that. And the first thing that we think about when we think of Gideon is, okay, he had all those, all those fighting men, 32,000. And he was going up against an army of 135,000. And God says, no, Gideon, it's too many. Yeah, the 32,000, too many. So ask all of them who are afraid to go home. So 22,000 of them left. So he's got 10,000. And you think, okay, well, I still got 10,000. 135,000 against 10, not good odds. God says, you still got too many, Gideon. Uh, you still, it's way too many. So now I want you to have them all go down and drink. And he said, the ones who put their heads down and lap it up like a dog, let them all go home. Those who take and kind of get it in their hand and, and, and drink it, you keep those. And there were 300 of those who, who got it in their hand and, and they drank that way. All the rest, he said, send them home. So here's Gideon with 300 men against 135,000. That's the story that we remember. We remember Gideon being a little uncertain about this, and so he puts out a fleece. And he says, Lord, if, if you're really in this and you're leading, then let the fleece be wet and the ground dry. And he said, okay, that worked. The God, you did that. Now, just to be doubly sure, let the fleece be dry and the ground wet. And God did that. We're not going to talk about that story at all today. All right? <laughs> We're going to talk about what God does before all of this happens. Because before all this happens, God reveals to Gideon a name that is so important. It is... It is something that is talked about much in our nation, in the world, really, among people, and experienced very little. In Judges chapter 6, God reveals to Gideon that he is Jehovah Shalom. He is God, our peace. What does that mean? What does it look like? Look with me in Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That word evil is used nearly 700 times. The first time, though, is back in Genesis 2, where God says, I don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes when we think of evil, we think strictly in terms, I did bad things. I, I did this terrible thing. I committed murder or adultery or I, I stole or whatever, whatever the list is for you. Okay, this bad thing, we think that's evil. But this term, really, the first time we see it used, and often when we see it used, it's not just in the bad things we do, but the heart of it is in the fact of who decides, or when we decide, who's going to be in charge. The, the Lord says at the very beginning there in Genesis 2, you can have everything that you see except this. This is off limits. And Adam and Eve decide, you know what? Because the enemy encourages them and they believe, and so God's holding out on us. We're going to decide what's best for us. We're going to decide what's good and what's evil. We're going to decide what's good and bad. We'll make that choice. When God talks about evil, that is the heart condition that he's talking about. More so than even all of the bad stuff that we think of that flows out of it comes from that heart condition, which is, I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. 
I'm going to decide what's good and bad. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They were in one of those places. They're deciding what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian was against them. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds, hiding places. They looked for places to hide. Now, why were they hiding? Notice what it says. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. So what they would do is they would simply wait for Israel, an agricultural society. They would wait for them to plant their crops. And then as they began to get to a point where they're ready to be harvested, they decide, here we come. We're going to come in and we're going to take what they have worked for. Notice the next, it says they would encamp against them. It says, and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. They would basically take everything they needed for life. They would destroy their livelihood. And so... Israel knew this, and they were trying to find ways to protect against that. That's thus the caves and the dens and different things. Notice the next verse. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. I mean, more than you could count, just covering the land. Both they, they didn't say they were locusts, they came up like locusts. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste the land to the land as they came. I want you to remember something. Remember back in Exodus when God brings judgment on Egypt and he brings the plagues? Do you remember what one of them was? It was locusts. He brought these swarms into the land. But he told Israel something as they were leaving. He said, if you will follow me, if you'll believe me, if you'll obey me, if you'll submit to me, I will not put any of these diseases on you that I have put on the Egyptians. Now, when you're reading that, it seems that the context of that, he's talking about all these plagues that have just taken place. Though, in the way we normally think of diseases, only one of them really was a disease as we think of it. One was boils. All the other nine seemed to be something different. It seemed like diseases as we would understand them. But it was interesting, we were having this conversation recently, and I think it was Aaron who said, look at the word, it's dis-ease, dis-ease. Something that brings a lack of ease in your life. But God said, there's no, I won't bring any of this on you if you'll follow me. They didn't follow him. They did evil in his sight. And what happens? They have locusts. Not physical locusts. Not the little bug kind. They had people locusts. They had people coming like locusts devouring everything. And Israel was brought low. The scripture says in the next verse, they were brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. All right, so this is the setting. Now I want you to skip with me for the sake of time, skip down with me to verse 11 because we're going to pick up the story there. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Oprah, which is how this word is pronounced. This is not where Oprah Winfrey gets her name. Um, she actually gets her name from the book of Ruth, Ruth 1, verse 14. Her mother named her after the other, the, the other daughter-in-law of Naomi at Orpha, and they misspelled it on her birth certificate, and she became Oprah. Um, but 
it's it's pronounced like Oprah, Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So the angel of the Lord sends or, or comes to Gideon in his hometown of Oprah. And it says, now the angel of the Lord begins to have a conversation with Gideon. Notice what it says. He came and he sat under the terrible tree. Let's look at the next one. Didn't I just read that? Oh, no, here we go. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terrible which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating the weed in the wine presses. Didn't I just read that? Look at the next one. Can we go to the next one? It's not. Oh, so this is not working. All right, well, I'll turn around then. And the angel of... That one's not working up there. I could open my Bible and read it that way, but then I have to test my eyes as to how well they work. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Don't miss that. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? Don't miss that. These questions and these stories, you know, sometimes I, I hear people say that we need to make God and the Word of God relevant. That, that is a, that's a mystery to me. Because as I read through God's Word, I don't know how it could be more relevant. How many of us have been in that place where God says something to us and we reply back, God, if what you say is true, then how come I'm in the mess I'm in? God, if you're with me, then where are you? Basically is what Gideon is saying. If you're with me, where are you? What you doing? Because it sure doesn't make any sense. So he goes on next verse. And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And he goes on. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? So he's already said, I'm with you. Now he says, I'm sending you. Gideon, go do this. Look at the next verse. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Basically, he said, I'm a nobody from a family of nobodies, from a tribe of nobodies. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Don't miss that. That's the key in all this. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Notice the next verse. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. I'm going to come back to this passage in a minute, but I want to say this right now while we're here. That it is not unusual when you and I are walking with the Lord and when we're trying to hear His direction in our life to wonder, is this really God or is this me? Or is it somebody else? Is it the enemy? Is it something else? It is not unusual to have that experience. And it's not wrong to do like Gideon and say, Lord, is this really you that's speaking with me? Because what you're asking me to do doesn't make a lot of sense. If I'm not careful, Lord, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to get myself killed and a lot of other people with me. Is this really you? It's okay to ask the Lord that question. As a matter of fact, it is my belief that he's not at all offended when we ask him that question. That he loves to verify that it's him. 
He loves to, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, to let every truth be established. There's some wisdom at times to stop and say, Lord, I want to be sure. Is this really? It's not that I'm rebelling. It's not that I'm resisting. I just, I just want clarity that this is your voice and not mine. What happens after this, and we won't read it all, but what happens after this is Gideon runs real quick and he kills a kid, a small goat, and prepares the meat, and then he gets an unleavened bread, a lot of unleavened bread. As a matter of fact, about a bushel's worth of unleavened bread, and he gets some broth, probably the broth that was left over from boiling the kid, the goat. And so he brings the, the goat, the bread, the broth. He brings it back to the angel of the Lord, and he puts it on a rock in front of him, really as an offering, if you will. And it's a sacrifice. Because remember, they're in a time where they don't have a whole lot. The Midianites have taken all their stuff. To bring this goat and this bread and this broth and bring it here, it's a sacrifice. It's a, it's a step of faith, really, on Gideon's part. It's interesting because it says the angel of the Lord took his staff, touched the rock, and fire came up out of the rock, devoured the goat, I mean, gone, Devoured the bread, gone. Devoured the broth, gone. Just not there anymore. And Gideon said, uh-huh, yeah, this is God. <laughs> I love that story, though. I love that picture. God's not challenged because you and I are asking, Lord, is this really you? He's not challenged by that. He's not put off. Lord, I want to really know. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be naive. I've asked that question many times. Lord, is this really you? I'm willing. I will do what you ask, but is this really you? The Lord demonstrated to him it really was him. So after that happens, then we get down to the next set of verses, verse 22. And Gideon has this revelation. Okay, this really is God, but then he gets afraid. Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. What is he saying? He's afraid because he thinks, I'm going to die. Because he believes, I can't see the Lord face to face and live. I'm going to die. So what does the angel say to him? But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Whatever you're afraid of, don't be. Don't be. I'm going to tell you this morning, for some of you, whatever you're afraid of, if you actually come to Jesus holding nothing back, laying it all out there, saying, Lord, whatever you say, whatever you want me to do, whatever you're afraid of, can I tell you this morning, it's a lie. And if you'll come to him, he'll speak to you and say, you didn't have to be afraid of that. You didn't have to be afraid of it. Then Gideon built an altar there in that place. The Lord, and he called it, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. If you're interested in, in more about Shalom, that word, um, Aaron sent me a link this week, and it was, um, I think, the Bibleproject.org or .com. 
and you can go there and they actually have a little three minute video and talks all about this Hebrew word and it's kind of a neat and they do it in a, in a very creative and easy to understand way. And so if you're interested in learning more about because it, this word shalom is more than just peace. It literally means whole, complete, restored, well-being. It's, so that's the reason it's often used as a greeting when you come up and say shalom to someone. It's not just peace to you, it's well-being to you. How are you? I mean, is everything whole with you? When God talks about peace, he's talking about way more than what we think. What is peace? First of all, let me tell you what it's not. Peace is not a ceasefire. Peace is not ceasefire. I mean, look in your own family. You may have a family member. You're not fighting, but neither are you talking. All right? That's a ceasefire. That's not peace. Peace isn't the absence of strife. It's something way more than that. It's not just coming to a place where I don't have problems. I want you to notice something about this with Gideon. Has anything happened with the Midianites when Gideon builds this altar and says the place, this place is called the Lord is peace? Has anything changed with the Midianites when Gideon does that? No. They are still there like locusts. They are still devouring everything. They have not been. Nothing has changed in his circumstances, but everything has changed for Gideon. Everything. Why? Because he had dis has discovered that peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is not a ceasefire or a truce. Peace is the presence of someone greater. And you will see this all the way through Scripture when you look at this whole concept of peace. What we keep calling peace, and the reason we talk about it so much and don't have it, is because we have a wrong definition of peace. We think peace is a ceasefire. That we think it's the absence of conflict. When it is not. It is the presence of someone greater. The recognition of His presence. And I can have that no matter what the circumstances are. No matter what's going on in my life, I can have that peace. You can have that peace. You can have rest. No matter what, you can have rest. Now some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, Troy, I don't know that that's true. I don't know how to do that. My mind doesn't let me rest. My worries, my fears, my concerns. I don't have peace. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But I want you to to, to get from Gideon what the Lord is showing him and what he wants to show us, that you have to change your definition of peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict or problem. Peace is the presence of someone greater than your problem. I want to tell you something else. Peace is not peace is not distraction from your problem. Most of us as Americans are really good at having distraction, and we call it peace. But it's very short-lived. So we have relationships. Notice what this says. It says Jehovah is peace. It doesn't say people are peace. It doesn't say money is peace. It doesn't say position is peace. It doesn't say power is peace. It doesn't say marriage is peace. It doesn't say singleness is peace. It does not say living in this place is peace. 
It doesn't say having seasons is peace. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that your favorite hobby and activity is peace. It doesn't say that. Those are distractions. You say, Troy, is there anything wrong with them? Not necessarily. Unless they are substitutes for the Prince of Peace, and then there's something wrong with them. There are many things that God has given us to enjoy, but they are never a substitute for Him. Never. And in many of our lives, that's exactly what they are. They are distractions from the fact that we don't really experience peace. You say, well, what if there are things that you really love, but you're not able to experience them? And that's causing a lack of peace. That's normal. You're not abnormal in that. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about this in the New Testament when he's, when he's talking to the Thessalonians who were under tremendous persecution and many of them were dying and they were experiencing that loss. And he said, you grieve, but you don't grieve as those who have no hope. Why did he say that? Because he knew that even in the midst of all of that, that God was still the Prince of Peace. He wants to be that peace for you and me. He will be that peace for you and me. But how? Look with me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is a name of God that is very meaningful to me because it has taken, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years of God just being so patient and merciful and kind and gracious to me to keep pulling me and, and, and teaching and opening my eyes and allow me to experience what peace really looks like. So if you're still in that journey, take hope. I'm a slow learner. It's taken me a long time. But God is faithful in it. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds. We would call that a mindset. They set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit Set their minds on things of the Spirit. So what's the difference between flesh and spirit here as Paul is describing it? In simple terms, if you set your minds on things of the Spirit, you are looking at life from God's perspective. I'm looking at every situation, everything that's going on, I'm seeing it from His perspective. When I look at it from the flesh, I'm looking at it from man's perspective. I'm looking at it from a perspective that's other than God's. In simple terms, in the simplest terms I know how to make it, that is, so if you are walking in the Spirit, it means you're being empowered by the Spirit because you're looking at life through the eyes of the Spirit. You're receiving what He wants to do in your life because you're willing to submit to the way He thinks and what He sees and what He says. So He says, if you set your mind on the flesh, then you live life that way. If you set your mind on the Spirit, you live life that way. Notice the next verse. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It is death. It may not be instantaneous cessation of life, but it is death. When you and I set our minds on the flesh, on the things of this earth, on life, 
apart from God and how He thinks and how He sees it. It is death. It's death in relationships. It's death in our emotions. It's death in our mind. It's death all across the board when we set our minds on those things. I have been... Any of you ever been in a mental graveyard? You know what a mental graveyard is? It's when your mind keeps going round and round over the same dead stuff. The same fleshly stuff. Oh, I have spent nights in mental graveyards. Just going round and round. My mind set on things of the flesh. Trying to come up with an answer to get out of the graveyard. He says, but the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. Oh, excuse me. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. So let's see what Paul's saying here. The Holy Spirit's saying through Paul. That I can have peace. I have peace because I receive his life. I receive his life because I have a mindset. Because I have a mindset on the spirit, not on the flesh. And when my mind is set on the spirit and not on the flesh, what do I experience? I experience what Gideon experienced in Judges 6, his presence. His presence. I told you a moment ago that peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of someone greater. When you and I have a mindset on the things of the Spirit, and I'm not talking about thinking about churchy things. So, okay, I'm going to go now and think about churchy stuff. No, that is not what I'm talking about. It is a willingness in everything. And we're going to go back to Judges and see how this it works it out in that passage. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to control my mind and what I think. I'm going, to, I'm going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and put my focus on the things of the Spirit. I'm going to have this mindset. I'm going to make that choice. I'm going to use the will that God gave me to operate this way. But if I don't, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. See, we go all the way back to evil. Remember that in the beginning of Judges, it says that, that the nation of Israel did evil in his sight. What is evil? At its very heart, I'm deciding that I'm God. I'm deciding what's right and wrong. I decide what I think about. I decide what's important. I decide where I go or where I don't go. I decide when I do it, how I do it, and with whom I do it. I decide. God says, that's evil. That's a mindset on the flesh. There is no life and peace in that mindset. None. Look with me real quickly back in Judges. By the way, this, there's not just one verse that talks about this. We won't turn there right now, but you can jot it down and look at it later. Romans 15, verse 3. Or excuse me, 15, 13. He says, now, he says, I'm praying that the God of all hope will fill you with joy and and peace, how in believing. Joy and peace in believing. This is mindset. Wherever your mind is set, what you believe to be true changes everything in your life. Even when nothing in your life changes. Even when the circumstances do not change, everything changes because of what you believe. Because of what I believe. You're going to have to believe what God says about life when it doesn't make any sense. Because look at the first part, when those first few verses in Judges 6. 
1 through 6. The Midianites are coming and destroying them. There is nothing good as far as Israel is concerned going on in their life during those seven years. Nothing at all. And yet God says, no, I'm at work here. I'm doing something good. I can have peace because I believe what God says about life. Not what man says about life. Not what my friend says about life. Not what books tell me about life or TV tells me about life or social media tells me about life. You know, one of my complaints with social media, one of the reasons I don't do it, there are some good uses of it, and I have seen that. Some of you are encouraged by people, and, and when, they're, when people's mind is set on the Spirit and they share that, then it is encouraging. But most of the time when people share on social media, their mind is set on the flesh, and they're communicating that and then spreading it, and it is death. Now, I'm not on a war against social media because it's here to stay. I realize that. But you need to be careful with it. You don't listen to people whose minds are set on the flesh. You listen to people whose minds are set on the spirit. That's life and peace. And there are good uses for it. If you're on it, you ought to find good uses for it. But it's amazing how many lies are communicated in this day and age. And it's not just social media. We do it when we talk face-to-face -to -face too. But how many lies? I'm not, I don't want to pick on anybody, but I also I want to illustrate things so that we begin to recognize how, how sinister the enemy is and how deceptive he is. Lord and I were talking recently about this, this, this idea of when your children are small, those are the best days of your life. That's a lie. It's a lie. From the pit, it's a lie. That means that once your children get past a certain age, the best days of your life are over. You have nothing but gloom and doom ahead of you. Is that the God that you know? It's not the God I know. My best days are still to come. They're still to come. But we propagate this as though it's truth. And other people say, yeah, that's so true. Now, here is the truth. Enjoy every day because every day is a gift. Every day is a gift. So enjoy it. The day they make you just so happy you don't know what to do and the day you want to kill them and eat them. Enjoy them. Enjoy every day. Every day. We don't really want to do that, but sometimes we feel that way. Enjoy it because every day is a gift. That we could put up there. Enjoy today because every day is a gift. But do not believe the lie that your best days are just right now. If that were the case, then God were to come back and take us or we would just die after they get to pass a certain age. We communicate things to one another that are the way the flesh thinks. And we receive it as truth. And we wonder why we don't have life and peace. I... I love change of seasons and cool weather. But life and peace are not a result of change of seasons and cool weather and leaves dying. Okay? It's not. Some of you love the snow. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you do. You <laughs> love the snow. And that's great. God gave it. It's a gift. But it's not life and peace. 
Do you understand how the enemy comes in, though, and he attacks us, he bombards us, and we believe these lies, and we walk around, and we have no peace? Because our minds are not set on things of the Spirit. I've been wrestling in my own life recently with being just the weariness of the work. Just, it's not bad. It's just tired because there's a lot that's going on in these days. And people will come and some of you will come and you'll apologize and say, Pastor, I know you're busy. Everybody I know is busy, okay? I'm not the only busy person on the planet. Everybody I know is busy. And it's, busyness is not really the issue. The issue is, am I about the work that God has called me to every day? And are you about that work? And am I being restored and renewed every day as I'm doing it? But see, sometimes I get in my mind that I need to do something different so I can be restored and renewed. Or I have to get away from someone or something to be restored and renewed. That's not true. See, if my mind is still in the Spirit, I realize that I can be restored and renewed no matter what's going on. Because peace is not the absence of difficulty. It's the presence of someone greater. Jehovah Shalom. You've got to believe truth about life. You've got to believe truth about what God says about you. When God came to him and he said, Gideon, I'm with you and you are a mighty man of valor. You are a God. Literally what he says, my translation, you are a godly man of strength and influence. And Gideon says, no, I'm not. God, who are you talking to? That's not me. You and I, if we're going to think according to the spirit, we're going to have to believe what God says about us. We're going to have to believe it. And the enemy will come and tell you something different. Do you know the one that I wrestle with? The enemy lies. And I have to believe what God says. And that is that I'm the man that's supposed to lead this ministry. I wrestle with that one. Because I often believe that someone else would be better. And often I have to come back and say, God, is, am I hearing you correctly? That this is where you have me. This is the place you have me. This is the role that you have for me. This is what you want me doing. And to come back to that place. But we all, no matter who we are, we have to wrestle with the lies that the enemy says that are contradictory to what God says is true in your life and my life. And the enemy knows where to come at you. See, for some of you, that one would never bother you at all bothers me but it wouldn't bother you but you could tell me yours i'm thinking that one wouldn't bother me but it bothers you because the enemy knows he knows how to come at you he lies to you but god has an answer that is specific to his lie he has an answer that specifically contradicts the lie that he tells you it's personal for you who he believes that you are who he knows that you are See, God's speaking based on who he designed Gideon to be, not who he was at the moment. But he knew what he was going to be. Now, was Gideon perfect? Not by a long shot. You keep reading in chapters, the end of chapter 6 and on in chapter 7. As a matter of fact, even when he starts obeying God, he does it at night because he's too afraid to do it in the daytime. It still doesn't look like a mighty man of valor to me, but see, I don't see like God sees. God says, you're a mighty man of valor. That's who you are. You're going to have to believe what God says about life. You're going to have to believe what God says about you. And you're going to have to worship before you see the results. Gideon brings, and it's verse 19 says, he presented. 
He presented his offering. He presented his gift. He presented himself, really, because what he needed for life, he brought to the angel of the Lord. I believe Jesus incarnate in the Old Testament or pre-incarnate in the Old Testament. That's my belief. He brought what he had. And he didn't have any, he didn't have anything, any hope of any more except the promise of God. That's all he had was the promise of God. That God was going to be doing great things. That things were going to change. He had nothing more than the promise. But he came to God anyway. And he presented. He had a worship service right there. And the Lord received his offering. It says he burned it up. And Gideon says, okay, I know. I have encountered the Lord so many times in worship. Not just worshiping with you, but my own just personal worship. Just praising Him in spite of the circumstances. Crying out, believing Him, declaring that I believe Him. Even when it doesn't make any sense. And He has revealed Himself. He loves to reveal Himself as Jehovah Shalom in the midst of our worship. He will do that for you. That's who He is. You are going to have to cooperate with Him. You're going to have to be willing to have your mind set on things of the Spirit. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they're coming, I'm going to close with this thought. I have, if I've heard it once, I have heard it a thousand times. Where someone would come to me and say, you know what? I didn't want to come to that gathering. I didn't want to come to church. I didn't want to go to that Bible study. I didn't want to go to this prayer meeting. I didn't want to come tonight. I didn't want to come today. I didn't want to do that. And yet I came anyway. For some reason I came anyway. And what God did in me, what He did for me, He said, I, I, can't, I, just, I can't get over it. If I've heard that once, I have heard it a thousand times. Do you know why that is true? Because the Spirit empowered you by an act of your will to set your mind on things of the Spirit, not things of the flesh. I had that same thing happen to me Friday night for the men's thing, um, our fireside chat, which we're going to have to rename that so that we don't build fires in August. All right, but, um, but, but anyway, it, it, was, it was a neat time. It really was. And we were sitting way back from the fire. I didn't want to go. I really didn't. And then I thought, you know, my spiritual thought was, well, they don't need me anyway. And that's true. They don't. They don't need me. All they need is Jesus. I know that. You know that. You don't need a person. On the other hand, the Lord knew I needed to be there. I needed it. And I was so encouraged and refreshed. But there was a point about an hour before that event where I had to set my mind. I don't necessarily want to do this. I would prefer to do something else. At least I think I would. I, I, I would think, in my mind, I'm thinking I'll be more refreshed if I do something else. And the fact is, I couldn't have been more refreshed than going and allowing the Spirit of God to move in me and around me. But I had to set my mind. You're going to have to set your mind. Not in a legalistic way. Not in a, okay, I've got to do everything, every time, every event the church has on the calendar, I've got to make sure I'm there. No, no. That's not what we're saying. What I'm saying is that often 
maybe more than often, maybe all the time, but that's, that's an absolute. I don't want to speak in absolutes when God does it. But here is the truth. More often than not, when God wants to do something in you and me, we're going to have a great desire to think fleshly thoughts. More often than not, that will be the truth. That'll be the case. And you're going to have to choose by the power of the Spirit to think on things of the Spirit. To think the way God thinks. And if you do, then there's life and peace. No matter what's going on. I went home Friday night. I was still tired physically, but I was spiritually encouraged. I was lifted. I want you to bow your heads with me. to experience Jehovah Shalom today. Gideon said, Lord, if you're, if you're with us, then why can't I see you? Why does it feel like you're not with us? Why can't I find you? Well, here's the truth. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, he's, he's always with you. But if you're not with him, you're not experiencing him being with you. If your mind is set on things of the flesh, you're not experiencing him as Jehovah Shalom. You're just not. Because there's no life and peace there. Just death. You're going to have to choose to believe him. What he says about life, what he says about you, what he says about himself. This is the part I love the most. He said, Gideon, if I wanted to, he, this is Troy's translation. If I wanted to kill you, you'd already be dead. It's not my desire to kill you. It's to fill you, to lead you, to, to, show, to take you where I designed for you to always go. That's my heart. That's who I am. That's what he's saying to you today. That's where he wants to take you. Now, that passage in Romans says, though, that if you don't have the Spirit in you, there's no way to experience life and peace. So today, in a few moments when we have prayer partners, if you don't know Jesus personally, if you don't have a relationship with Him, if you don't even know what that means, I would encourage you to come down to one of these prayer partners who will be at the front and just say, hey, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to have a relationship. I don't, I'm not experiencing that peace that you talk about. Let them pray with you. Let them, let them speak with you. If you do know Jesus, but you'd say, I don't have peace. My experience has been, and based on the word of God, often the reason I don't is because my mind is not set on the things of the spirit. I'm believing lies about life, about myself, about God somewhere. And I don't mean that as critical because I find myself there often.
And if you're there today and you need to experience in a fresh new way, Jehovah Shalom, God, my peace, I encourage you to let somebody pray with you before you go today. Let them pray. Just pray for you and pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are our peace, that you are the Prince of Peace, that you have made it possible that I can have peace in every situation. No matter what, I can have peace. I don't always live that way, Lord, but you've made it possible. It's there, it's available. Lord, I want to live, as Colossians says, I want to let your peace rule and reign in my heart. I want your peace to referee in my heart. To make all the calls. Lord, I want to believe you and what you say about life. What you say about me. What you say about yourself. I pray for each one here today that in the areas where they're not experiencing your life and your peace, that you would reveal to them even now where they're not believing you, where they're wrestling, where they're struggling, where, they're, where their mind is not set the way you want to set it. Lord, help us today. And I pray, God, I'm asking, as we were praying early this morning, someone spoke a word that they, that they heard from you that you give us the desires of our heart today. Lord, the desire of my heart is that everyone in this room would know peace that passes human understanding. It is the desire of my heart. What's more, it's the desire of your heart. It's what you, it's our birthright, Lord. It's our inheritance. It's what you died so we could have. And so, Lord Jesus, we receive today. I thank you for what you're doing. We give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.